0: morning hey, right, we're, quick thought here you know we've got all kinds of folks so we get we get contact from folks who are watching us through a live stream uh just seems like the lord has enabled us to connect with a lot more people than we're used to connecting to in spite of the fact that our presence here is is limited so when you come to church on a sunday right uh I think this would be an obvious thing for for most people, but this doesn't sit in the same category of our lives like a trip to Walmart or I'm going to school today or even I'm going to work today. Not to say that God doesn't have you doing those things and God is in those spaces with you. But but when you gather with God's people, there is something unique about that, right? So the Bible always speaks about the uniqueness of that place, It, it gives instruction to it, It calls us to it a certain way. Sometimes there's preparation that should be going on. And and I know it's hard in our busy lives to adequately prepare for everything that's coming up. Sometimes just showing up is about all we can seem to pull off. But so if I were to ask, hey, did you prepare to come today? Did you actually take any time to prepare your heart, prepare to receive something from God, prepare to, to give something to God? Right? I wanna, I'm going to highlight something about the, the preach word this morning. But I want to come back at another point and highlight what we just did in in the bringing of our worship and our adoration and our affection to God in singing. Um, I know sometimes we're just we're just getting here and we're just glad we made it. But God's looking for every ounce of us, right? God's looking for every piece of our heart, every aspect of the terrain of who we are to be engaged. And I want to do a little bit of an experiment with you here about receiving God's word being preached. And and I could open up several Bible verses that would say, what's the preaching of God's word supposed to do in this moment? And the Bible would describe many things that the preaching of God's word is supposed to do. But I've got a quote in your, in your notes there, if you guys are tuning in online in your notes that are online. Uh, John Stott, who you may or may not know, is an English pastor who was extremely influential in the Christian world throughout the end of the 1900s. And he said this in a book on preaching that he wrote a number of years ago. He says, I have always liked the definition of preaching given by Professor Chad Walsh. The true function of a preacher is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. That's always a a helpful phrase for me as I'm thinking through preaching elements that, you know, in this moment, I think God wants to do exactly that. I think he wants to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. I'm not sure if you have a definition for both of those things. The, the comfort, the disturbed one is kind of obvious, right? Life can get disturbing. You could be here after a week that's been very disturbing. It's disrupted your faith. It's disrupted your sense of well-being. You feel off balance. You feel threatened by some things. Relationally, some, some challenges have come. You don't know how things are going to resolve. And there is an aspect of God's word, because when we preach God's word, God's word is already preaching to us. That's what it's doing. It's it's not an encyclopedia, it's preaching to us. And so it's speaking into those categories. And so maybe for some this morning, God is eager for his word to comfort you in the midst of something that's disturbing you. And then there's another piece of the Bible, and we're gonna see this as we glance through First Peter again today, that God is seeking to disturb our comfort. God is seeking to interact with the place that we find ourselves in right now that God's gonna say to us, okay, move on from there. Time for you to go here now. Time for that to stop being part of your life and for this to become part of your life. And then the reality is a lot of times we're not comfortable with that, right? How many of you guys have walked with God long enough to know that sometimes what God does in your life is simply not comfortable? But if you've walked long enough, it's good though, isn't it? So I want to ask you this morning, just for your own sake, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, you just need to identify this in your heart. This is your homework assignment for preparation. Which would you be this morning? Would would you be needing God to comfort you in a disturbing place in your life? Or would you be needing God this morning to disturb you in a comfortable place in your life? All right, this is group participation. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want everybody to actually say to God, God, I think this morning I need you to fill in the blank. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for transformative moments in our lives. Real moments where, Lord, we can experience something that changes our lives, even just this morning. uh, Lord, I guess if I'm bringing milk home from Walmart, that's, that's a little bit of a change. At least we've got some stuff in the pantry. But Lord, what we bring home from here is an exchange with you, a living exchange with the living word of God by the Holy Spirit who is in us. And so, Father, whether we have come this morning in a category of of a disturbing week, disturbing activities, that we need you to inform those disturbing places with your word and find comfort there. Our Lord, maybe we have skidded in the church here, and we've just kind of been living in the same place. We're not being transformed. We're not pressing on. We're not growing. And you would like to disturb our comfortable place. Lord, whatever you have for us, God, we're here to receive it. Our hearts are open. We invite you, Lord, do what you will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are concluding our hanging out in 1 Peter chapter 5. We've been there for quite a number of weeks and enjoying the insights that God has given to the apostle Peter there. Uh, We're not going to be done necessarily with, with our discipleship reboot. We're going to visit that throughout the year in a number of different ways, but we're going to be done with 1 Peter 5 and move on from there after this week. But here's our passage. We're in 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 10. So let's read that together and get it in front of us. Peter says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who likewise... Is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, so this verse is going to accomplish something, but it's at the end of the book, and we've had to go back and regather a couple of thoughts from Peter to really understand 1 Peter chapter 5. You can't forget about 1 Peter chapter 1 and other things that have been accomplished so far. So along the way, I want you to just notice, along the way, a couple of passages where Peter has been disturbing the comfortable, right? He starts chapter one and in 1 Peter 1 verse 25, it says this, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, right? So what impact should this preach word have? Next thought. Remember, there's no chapters and verses in the original Bible. You didn't know that. So, So the next thought after this word that's been preached to you, so as a result of this preaching, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation. Right? So there is this Revelation of God that we call the gospel, it's been preached to us, and the result of that is Peter's going to disrupt our comforts. Because that list right there can be behaviors that you and I can get comfortable with. And I mean, no Christians can have these kind, these are ugly words, but activity of malice or deceit. We're not exactly truthful when we speak to people. Our patterns are not honest. Or hypocrisy. You know we're doing one thing and saying something different than what we do envy right this was written long before we had instagram or anything about somebody else's life to stare at slander right? so the apostle peter comes along and says there's this powerful truth of god's word that's been preached to us and it is disturbing our idea that we would continue in some of these activities christians should feel i, I should put that down I should move on from this. And then his next thought in that moving on is, you know, like newborn babies have this intense longing for the pure milk of God's word that by it, you may grow, right? Eventually you're going to go from having to be held to being able to walk, to being able to run, to being able to do adult things, right? That's the normal Christian life is for us to move along. First Peter chapter two, verse nine, here's another nudge moment where he is disturbing the comforts of our lives. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he, he jumps in a room with a group of believers just like this, And he calls us back to the mission that we're on. We have this missional assignment. We're chosen by God for a task. We're supposed to be proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while in your life, right? I mean, you can recognize you got saved back here a number of years ago. And then that initial thing happened in your life, whatever that looked like for you. Some change took place, some new way of doing life. You grew to a place. All right. Now, how many can identify that maybe you grew to a place that just sort of got flat and you kind of stopped growing then? Just kind of stayed in that place and you got comfortable there, right? And Peter comes along and says, hey, let's bust that up, right? This proclaiming of God's glory from your life, hey, it started to happen here and it was going on this way here, but it's kind of like plateaued. How many of you guys recognize God's not interested in his glory plateauing? He's not interested in the church sending the message to the world that, you know, God's got a ceiling. <laughs> you know, God's really awesome and amazing. And when you get to about right here, that's about it. God's kind of done. No, God's got more, doesn't he? God has more for you and I to experience and to transfer into this world. But when I get to this point in chapter 5, 1 Peter has spent a lot of time navigating that life doesn't always go in a pleasant, helpful way life has pain in it. Life has difficulty in it. So I very much think if, if Peter's trying to do anything in this verse that we're reading today, he is trying to comfort the disturbed. He's trying to find the places where life has beaten us up a bit and bring some help to that moment. But I want us to pay attention to something. What could the Holy Spirit say through the apostle Peter that would help people who are in a moment where life right now is featuring suffering and difficulty. What could he say? What would you want him to say? right, their lives aren't that much different than ours. A little different technology, definitely a different pace of life, but they're people doing relationships, they're people with jobs, they're people with sicknesses in their bodies, they're people who are trying to figure out how to pay bills and how to have a career. I mean, they're very similar to where we are, and when the wheels come off of life and they face disappointment or struggles or temptations and unbelief, what what could you say to that person in that moment? And what would you say necessarily? If you're sitting across the table from somebody, what would you say to them? Well, this is not the only thing the Bible says here, but to really get this, I'm going to highlight two things today. To get what is being said here, you have to catch two things about God's storyline. Right, First, is that our lives in, in God's redemptive story, right? That's the story that we're in. God is redeeming things. They always contain elements of what, I, what the Bible, really theology calls the now and the not yet, right? So when you and I are reading the Bible, is, is the Bible describing right now or is it describing not yet? And there's a importance for, we'll see today that if you pull the not yet inappropriately into this setting right here, uh, we'll get very confused about God and about what he's doing. And secondly, there is this looking to the glory that's going to be revealed all throughout the New Testament, especially here in this passage. So faith held awareness in this passage is treated as sufficient and powerful for the right now. You're going through something right now and the Bible is going to say, hey, can I I get you to look at this thing far, far away here? I might have to give you some binoculars to see it because it might not show up anytime really, really soon. But that thing right now is going to have an impact on right here. And I got to be honest with you as I'm studying this verse. I mean, just looking at my own life. um, I too often want my right here, right now problems to be solved by something right here and right now. I kind of don't want God telling me, can you look way over there at something? It's like, well, God, that's great for them, but that's not where I am right now, right? I want something right here and right now. So this thing going on on Sunday, I kind of like for it to be done by Wednesday at the latest. And I like for it to change this way and this way, ways that I can identify about right here and right now. But God often speaks to our right here, right now, all throughout the Bible by telling us to look way over there. And here's why. This is where Peter started his message in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And he's going to pick this up again in verse 5, right? In chapter 5. Verse 3 says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can we just pause for a moment and catch the grace of God coming our way in this passage? The most miraculous thing in our lives is that you and I have received another life besides our own. Most miraculous thing that's ever happened and could ever happen to us, right? I know we'd all like to be uh, healed of some disease. And we'd say, wow, I mean, if you walked up here today and, and, and you had some disease and we just pray and you were healed, we'd say, wow, that's pretty amazing. Uh, if, if somebody dies and they're brought back to life, we go, wow, that's, that's really amazing. But, but, but I cannot tell you neither one of those fixes the inside of you not having a life. The biggest miracle of our lives is that we have been born again by a life that we did not have. And, and why did that happen? Well, by his great mercy. The biggest event of your life came to us by his mercy. Not because we did something. Not because we were good religious people who attended services and did kind things to other people. By his mercy. Not because God looked into the future and saw that you were a straight A student. And you were going to do an awesome job. If he made you a child of the kingdom, you would not embarrass him from that moment forward. So he caused you to be born again. That's not what this says, does it? By his mercy, you and I were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we're about to celebrate at Easter was the means through which that could get accomplished. It it wasn't whether or not we ever tithed enough. It wasn't our determination. It wasn't the size of our faith. It was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this living hope now gets attached to something, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have been born again to a living hope that is attached to an inheritance, something you're going to have. That's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, right? Can you, just, can you just survey your closets right now and survey your life, your bank account, your health, your mental attuity, everything about your life. Just how many of those things are perishable? How many of those things are undefiled? They can't be corrupted by sin. They can't be touched. How many of those things are unfading? They're, they're not going to go from this great posture to something less. All of you who are older right now, you're playing along well. Lester, you especially. I saw a video of you yesterday. There's a lot that is fading, isn't there, Lester? Thanks for acknowledging that in the video I saw. Um, And it's kept in heaven for you. Is it it here? Well, that's going to be the challenging point because in some ways, well, yes, it is. But at the same time, it's also kept in heaven for you Right? And then when God explains that future, to I mean, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded. right? So God's going to make sure you get to that point through faith. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's an aspect of our salvation. If you're a Christian, you know that word. That word salvation is a huge word to you. Every human being has to come to a point to engage something called salvation. You have to be saved out of this world. And, you know, I can point back and I can say in a moment, in a moment of my life in 1979, in February, I was saved. Salvation came to my life. But then I read this verse and it says there's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's something about this salvation that comes to me that's in heaven waiting for me. It's it's not right here. In this you rejoice. Okay, so even though I don't have that yet, I'm still able to rejoice in it. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All right, so this is the theology of God. That there is a right now life happening and there is another life that's on its way. And the Bible is really clear about that. And if we look to that life correctly, we experience in the right now this living hope. Right? So let both of these things get in the room with us for a second. Grievous trials are in the room with us right now. They're here. If you are experiencing a life that actually feels like a grievous trial, uh, you don't need to be here this morning feeling guilty, You don't need to be self-accusing. You don't need to wish that you were a real Christian so that you'd never have these things. You don't need to be sitting asking, what did I do wrong? Why is my life feeling this way? Why am I going through this pain, right? Now, listen, the more painful it is and the more disorienting it is, the more we ask bad questions, but we need some helpful theology in that moment. This Bible verse isn't surprised that right now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, but it just said in something else, you rejoice. So I'm living in a setting where I have a living hope and rejoicing that's roommates with trials that bring grief in my life. So both of these things are true and they're real. There is this conflict in our lives. Are you out of bounds as a Christian if that's what your life feels like? Well, I I need to pay attention to how the Bible reveals what we just described as God's redemptive story, right? Here's God's redemptive story. The God who exists in eternity at some point creates the world that we live in. He creates human beings. And in that moment in the Garden of Eden, life existed a certain way here. And we all know the rest of the story, right? Sin plunged creation into the fall and ruin. And a whole new set of activity took place on this created world now. Sin is present. Suffering is present. Sickness is present. Death is here. A real devil is here. All right, so that's going to play its way out. And the whole Bible is going to point to this one central character. Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who's going to come in the flesh, and he's going to interfere with this storyline in a massive way. He's going to be the only human being who ever lives a perfect life, and then he's going to surrender himself into the judgment of God to judge the sin of humanity, all of the sin, the sickness, the devil himself. God is going to judge this fallen world in his son. And in the moment where Jesus says, it is, is finished. Something really is finished in that moment. And God lets the whole universe know when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, what he said was finished really is finished. And then Jesus ascends to the father and sits at the right hand. He is now on the throne ruling with his authority from heaven. That's done. And then one day, we're going to get to go to heaven. We're going to be in glory, right? But what about the moments between when Jesus ascends into glory and we get to go into heaven? What's happening right here? Great great kind of visual image here. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he describes this moment this way. He says the lines for this age, right? The one we're living in right now. And the age to come, the one we're not living in yet, they overlap. They overlap now because the powers of the age to come have broken into this present evil age. So that Christians live during an overlap of the ages. All right, so this is, you know, I'm going to use this as a visual. All right, so here is the age in which we live and this is the age to come. Now, if you were Moses or Abraham, this is what what the graph would look like. There was the age you were living in and the reality that you were experiencing that got established by Adam and Eve in the garden and the deal they made with Satan. And now they live in a world that's full of evil and sickness and suffering. And there's this age to come that the Bible is foreseeing way over there, this age to come. But as we travel through time and then Jesus shows up and accomplishes what he accomplishes, these two ages do this now. This one doesn't go away, and this one's not fully here yet. And we live in that little overlap moment right now. So that age has invaded this age, and you and I should be looking for it. We should be seeking it, and in some ways, we should be experiencing it. However, it's not fully here yet. So the things that the Bible says about that age are not fully capable of being experienced right here and right now. So I think I put this in your notes. The right now can and is to be invaded and interrupted by the not yet. That not yet coming kingdom that we don't have fully yet. But it is to invade. It's to touch. It's to mess with. So let me just give you three three quick examples right here that I'll, I'll... explain a little further as we move along. The gift of healing, deliverance from demonic activity and victory over sin. All right, what's in this world is, is brokenness in this world, right? Death came to Adam and Eve when they sinned and their bodies were going to die for reasons. You know, it wasn't like they just hit a, a bell didn't go off and they dropped dead, right? They got a sickness, That led to death, that caused their heart to stop beating, caused their brain to stop functioning. Sickness had invaded this world. And what God does when He sends His Son is He messes with sickness, doesn't He? When Jesus shows up here, Jesus does a lot of healing. He goes from one place to another. As a matter of fact, a lot of His agendas where He's teaching things, He's just on His way to heal somebody else. He's gonna heal this person, gonna heal that person. Why is healing such a massively big deal? uh, because we are partially physical beings in the age to come. We're going to have physical bodies. God's going to give us a new body to live in the new heaven and the new earth. So we were always meant to have bodies by God. We're not just going to be spirits floating around in heaven. We're going to have physical existence and God comes into this world and he touches our physical existence with healing. And, and then he unpacks the gift of healing, right? He gives to the church the gift of healing to keep putting on display the healing God who has brought the age to come and touch the age in which we live. So he disrupts, but, but notice something, this age is still present. So therefore sickness still exists, doesn't it? And, and if we can invite you forward this morning, this is why we should, and we do pray for the sick, Because we believe that God invades this temporary moment and he heals the sick. Does he heal everybody? No. Can I just tell everybody, whether you ever experience healing or not, you're going to die one day because your body is going to surrender to the sickness that came into this world way back in the Garden of Eden. And you will not escape that. One guy did, Jesus did, and then Enoch did. Everybody else dies a physical death in this age. In this age, not in that one, right? This one. Nobody dies in this one. But you die in this one and this one's still here. So if we could pray for you this morning and God's miraculous power could show up in your body and you've got some disease that nobody's been able to treat and instantly you feel the sun, the symptoms go away and it lifts from your body and you are healed. Can I just tell you that doesn't mean you're going to live in that body forever. You're still going to die. Because in this present age, everybody dies. But God has disrupted this present age. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what he gives it to the church to do. You and I live in an age where demonic powers are being disrupted. Right? Jesus, if he wasn't healing people, he was interfering with demonic activity in the world in which he walked around. He was casting out demons. He was stopping demons. He was exercising authority over them. And the Bible makes a big deal about that. The Bible would, would send somebody to Jesus who was complaining that there's been demons doing this to my children. Can you stop it? Nobody else has been able to stop it. And Jesus comes and arrives and, and he uses his authority to disrupt those demons. But you do, you do recognize that the demons didn't go away, right? The demons stayed in the world and they continued to operate. And Jesus would cast out some more of them. He cast out some more of them. And then when he left... The demons were still here and they're still doing demonic stuff. And the church now had to engage a world that's got demons in it and bring the power of the age to come to touch this one right here and right now. The same is true of, of sin. Sin operates in this world. It's deceptive. It's powerful. It gets underneath your skin. It begins to mess with how you do your life. Well, the Bible says sin is going to be present in this age, but not in that one, right? You do recognize in the age to come, where we are setting our hope, there is no sin operating in that setting. You will not face one day where you'll be tricked by your circumstances, by a lying spirit. You will not be distracted from God. You will not doubt. You will not turn to something else to replace the promises that God has made to you. You will never experience a moment where you are not fully delighted in God. You will never be bored with the things of God and the things that are spiritual in in that life. That's what's waiting for us. But in this moment right now, that's here in some measure, and we should experience it at some measure, but it's not fully available. John Piper's written a a book, I think it's a massive undertaking on his part to write a book called Providence, and it is a massive book. I think it's over 700 pages, Uh, but I was glancing through it this week, and he, he references an earlier chapter when he says, the previous chapter left us with the weighty reminder of the embattled condition of God's people in this fallen age. It's an embattled condition. Sin is unspeakably powerful, not only in unbelievers, but also in the remaining corruption of true Christians. So the weight of sin is with us still. To be sure, in the fullness of time, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. But it is a long and embattled triumph. Not one Christian is made perfect in this life. God's way is to magnify the patience of grace through the persistence of sin. We have not yet seen the climax of God's saving achievement embattled though we are the victory is sure and that's the challenge right to maintain believing the victory is absolutely sure even though right now i'm not seeing it fully i see it by faith i don't see the reality when my body takes on physical infirmity it calls into question Will sin ever be eradicated? Will sickness ever be done with? Right? That's what I have to battle with in this moment. But we know victory is sure. There will be perfect sinlessness in a perfect world. Radiant with the glory of God reflected in the Christ-exalting gladness of his people. That's the age to come. That's what you and I are being told to in the moment of our suffering. In this suffering moment. Peter's wisdom from the Holy Spirit is, look to the age to come. Reboot your view of eternity and let it have an impact on the right here and the right now. So, so here's a theologically accurate moment for us. Your outline I wrote, so we conclude that I, I can and I will be liberated in some measure in the here and now from sickness, suffering, demonic powers, and sin, but I will be fully liberated and gain full, complete, unceasing access to this experiential reality in a salvation ready to be revealed. Listen, this is not a small point. This has been a point of great theological confusion for the body of Christ for for many years, right? Right? There is a debate, I'm going to pick this up in a a separate message later this year, but I wrote in your outline two things, a correct charismatic interpretation and an incorrect interpretation of the kingdom coming, right? What do I mean by those two thoughts? Well, it is correct to interpret the charismatic invasion of this world as the kingdom that is to come invading the darkness, this present evil, the brokenness and the sickness in this world, So Jesus comes as the most charismatic person who ever walked on the earth. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit to go about doing ministry in this world. And he disrupted the darkness that was in the places of this world by bringing the Holy Spirit's ministry to bear on people's lives. And so people got healed. They got delivered from demonic powers. God transformed them. He raised them from the dead. He disrupted this world. And then he turned around, breathed on his disciples, promised them power at Pentecost that would be for the church age to come, and told them, the works that I have done and you have seen done, and greater works than these shall you do, for I go to the Father. And he had brought the initiation of the coming age and sat it on top of this broken world. And he basically told you and I, keep messing with this broken world keep bringing the kingdom to come to bear on this broken world. Well, how do we do that? We pray for the sick. We seek the miraculous power of God. We use the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to minister to one another. It's the invasion of the coming age into this age. Right, so I've got, I've got multiple reasons why I'm not a cessationist from the scriptures, Uh, this would be one of them, to understand the kingdom of God and how it comes and how God has inaugurated it coming. But if you understand that there is a dimension of the future kingdom here, but it's not here fully yet, it will rescue you from why you're probably rejecting spiritual gifts. Because the incorrect interpretation that many, many folks have applied to this topic has done a disservice to this topic, right? The health and wealth gospel that's available out there if you tune into the wrong places, it's going to teach you about that age is fully available in this age. So it's going to take the streets of gold, it's going to take the abundance, it's going to take the mansions, and it's going to pull it from a future reality, and it's going to put it in your backyard. And it's going to tell you you can have all of this right now, both in the form of wealth as well as the form of health in your body. Because by the way, by his stripes, you are healed. That 's in the Bible, you know. Have you all heard that verse before? Have you ever used that verse in your own life? ever used that verse praying for someone else? Is that a good verse to use? Of course it is. it 's the Bible. But what does it mean? Well, here is what I believe the correct understand, understanding of this overlap of the kingdom is that when Jesus finished what he was doing, He fully accomplished whatever would be needing to be accomplished for us to have bodies that will be whole and healed. It is finished. He did it. He paid the price. He paid for it in his own body, right? So he purchased for us divine health that will never be touched by sickness and never be touched by sin pulling us into sickness. That was fully accomplished by Jesus Christ. But if I read my Bible, I understand that there's a coming age, version of that. And there's a right now dimension of that. The right now dimension still has sin and sickness in this world. It's sin and sickness is not eradicated in this world. It's still here. It will go away, but right now it still exists. So by his stripes, I am healed. I don't believe it all means that I can, if I'm a Christian, I will never have sickness in my body. I don't even think it means that that's the potential for me. And a second you start believing it's your potential, now you have to explain to me, well, then why aren't you healthy right now? Why aren't you without sickness right now? And what have you, what have you been taught by folks in this camp? And I'm saying that kindly as much as I can. I don't have kind affections for people who have taught this. You were taught that the only reason, since God has done everything on his end and has made it fully available to you, the only reason why you don't have divine health every day of your life is because of your unbelief or your sin. All right, so is there anywhere in this economy of God where God has taught, right? We just learned about the mercy of God. Now you're born again by the mercy of God. Everything's about God and what God does. But yet when it comes to you actually possessing all the good that God accomplished for you, now it's up to you. All right, can we just fast forward to heaven? How many of you guys believe that heaven will only be heaven to you as long as you don't sin and as long as there's no unbelief in you? Do you believe that about heaven? Do you believe that you're going to this awesome place that you can screw up just like that? When you stop believing and you don't believe enough or you sin, you're going to wreck the whole place and it's all over for you. I got to tell you, this is no longer good news for me. I know my track record. I'd screw up heaven in a second if it took that long. So my wonderful future existence would not be anything that Peter could comfort me with because I would know, Peter, nice try, dude. But living hope, I'm going to botch that up so bad the second I get there. This is not dependent upon you and me. Divine health is going to be a guaranteed experience. But not right now. God could disrupt your health issues right now, and he does, or he may not. God could disrupt sin in incredible ways. God could disrupt the demonic world in incredible ways right now, but they're still here. Right, I, I grew up, you know, I got saved and eventually got first steps into the kingdom of God were were in the charismatic dimensions of the kingdom of God for which I'm grateful in many many ways but there are practices that I never could fully explain and never could fully get my mind around Um, you know there's a practice of binding Satan some of you who grew up in the charismatic world you know a little bit about that So I I can, I can remember there are moments where we were praying prayers, right? We'd be praying for people in an altar, praying for people in a small group. And there's certainly something demonic going on here. And we're praying the binding Satan prayer. So we're binding Satan right now. So even without me having a decent understanding of this overlap issue theologically, I can, I can remember, you know, you're a week later and you're in the same small group and you're praying for the same person again, and there's still some stuff going on there. And what are you doing? I'm binding him again, which made me start asking some questions didn't we just do this last week? How long does that binding last? Is that like a week-long binding? You know, if you really get good prayer, you get two weeks out of it. Is that, Does that? you got to pray that again every day? Is that a one-day thing? And if I bind Satan here in Metairie, is he bound in Calcutta? I mean, is that, what is this, what's the impact of this binding thing that I'm doing here? Well, somebody mistaught that by reaching into the coming age when revelation 20 actually does still need to exist you know i don't get to dismiss revelation 20 where satan is bound and eventually is thrown into the lake of fire and nobody hears from him at all anymore i i don't have to tell god hey god you know that revelation 20 thing you don't need to do it we were praying the other day and we took care of satan he's bound he's done he, he's toast man the dude is over uh, well, really Keith. well, why did Peter tell you to put your head on a swivel and keep your eye out? Because the devil is roaming about like a roaring lion. He seems to be on the loose and he will be on the loose until you draw your last breath. And then God will take care of the binding. And when he's done binding Satan, there will be no escape for Satan. He won't show up again next week in your prayer meeting, having to be bound again. But this is this is a theological confusion. And this shows up all over the place. I'm going to do something in a few weeks from the, the 1800s to give some insight on, on what the holiness movement did in the kingdom of God. It was a powerful movement. There was a lot good that came out of it. But there was also some things that weren't good that came out of it. it they took the same, the same exact problem. Let me reach into heaven and grab some theological realities and pull them into right now. And so... Uh, Jesus has purchased for us freedom from sin, deliverance, liberty from sin. That's what Jesus purchased. So if you're a Christian, you should be free from sin. And so along with the holiness movement came the application of the idea that in this life, you could experience sinless perfection. And once that word, sinless perfection, got into the vocabulary of Christians, it, it was a lightning storm now of people who agreed with it and didn't disagree with it. But to be quite honest with you, the people with the bad theology were seeing more of God at work than the people with the good theology were. That's an interesting thing. But the holiness movement that got birthed out of that, it was taking a future reality and overapplying it. In this world, sin isn't going away until God is done with this age. And the coming age shows up in our lives. Until that moment, this tension, this battle exists, which means there are days when you and I experience incredible victory because that coming age has invaded our lives. And there is power, and we can go free. And then there are, coming, there are days as well where sin gets the upper hand, and you and I have to pick up to pieces. D.A. Carson, in his book, How Long, O Lord says this tension between the already and the not yet, the kingdom has already arrived and the kingdom has not yet come is a commonplace of biblical thought. To put the matter in a nutshell, once the consummated kingdom has dawned, there will be no more evil or suffering among the Lord's people. But meanwhile, even though the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, evil and suffering are on the one hand, said to be defeated in principle, but yet on the other are palpably present and in some ways can be expected to increase. The world gets all jacked up more and more than it already is in being entangled in sin. And the church world even finds itself having fits, battling the power and the onslaught of sin. How are you going to interpret that? when I interpret it this way, and I understand the last days are going to jack up the activity of sin in incredible ways, and you and I are going to have more of a battle with sin on our hands in the future than we have had so far. I understand that because this present evil age, it's not gone yet. But the coming age is being inserted into it in ways that we get to see God wonderfully at work. But let me go back to the original question here. This insight about that coming age is written into a setting where suffering is present right now. It's, it's on the field with us. It's engaged our lives, right? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. Look again. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you after you have suffered for a little while. How do you you apply that? How do you interpret that phrase? After you have suffered for a little while. What's a little while mean to you? Does it mean like, you know, next Tuesday? Does it mean next year at this time? After you've suffered for a little while? Right, I know I'm, I'm making it sound like it can't mean that. Well, it could mean that. There are things that God is doing in the temporary realms of our lives. He's always engaged in every activity of our lives. Right, there, there was a, a temporary earthly dimension of this for Job. Right? Job, the king of all sufferers in scripture, his little while changed on earth. Right? God stepped into the horrible conditions that his life had become and changed them and brought blessing and abundance into his life in this world. But Job doesn't become the, you know, the test pattern for everybody here. So, you know, somebody who, who loses a child doesn't get it, the child replaced by multiple more children. But that did happen to Job. God could step into your broken world, and next week things could be extremely different. And words that are in this passage could characterize it. Words like restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But what if you're a Christian, and you, you have a little bit too much of an overrealized interpretation of the future in your day right now. And you read words like this, like God will restore. God's going to restore. And you've gone through a divorce, And you're trying to apply this and you're saying, well, after a little while, God's going to restore. Now, do you see some of the danger here of how you pick this verse up and what you make it mean? Does that mean God is going to restore your marriage? I've watched people make it mean that. I've watched people interpret the idea that the God who restores, restores everything in this world. Is is your health going to be restored in this life? It could be. Visited with Bill Treby the other day and just listened to the incredible good news of how cancer has kept at bay in his life. And he's been battling cancer for quite a while now. And just the amazing reality that God has pushed that thing to the edges of his life. And he's not feeling the impact of that cancer right now. God could restore your health completely. But in this present evil age, you're going to die from something. And so if he doesn't do that, what does this verse mean? Well, I think it's got a not yet interpretation and a right now interpretation. I think there are things that God can do right here in the right now, but there are things that this verse is trying to make us look to that are not right here and right now and that are not going to show up right here and right now. They're going to be realized there. Right? So there is going to be a dimension where this verse comes true there because God, who after you have suffered a little while, the God who has called you to his eternal glory. What is that? Well, I think consistently in the New Testament, that eternal glory is over there. We get to taste it right here but it's fully over there, right? Romans chapter eight, incredible chapter about this hope that's waiting for us. And it's not exactly here. Starts a whole section in this by saying it this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for a salvation, right? That is awaiting us. There's something over there that's waiting for us. That's not right here and right now. And right here and right now, the suffering that we experience needs to be alleviated, needs to be touched and impacted and affected by us being more aware of that. Right? That's what Peter's trying to do right here. He's trying to say, hey, suffering is in this world with you. But what about that? That's the living hope that you've been born again to, a hope over there that can never be taken. It's, not, it's undefiled. It's kept in heaven. It's not getting corrupted. It's not like your hair falling out, right? The next time you stare down at your sink and you see little pieces of you hanging out there, staring back at you, just be, let it remind you, oh, I have something waiting for me that won't do that. <laughs> you got something that God's given to you that's never going to fade. It's not going to diminish It's not going to become less. It's not going to get interfered with. The devil can't roam around and mess with that. Sin can't get underneath your skin and suddenly mess and blow up your whole world. You are going to a place where that can never, ever happen to you. It's waiting for you after you suffer for a little while. That's what Peter is trying to say. But I got to be honest with you studying this i mean the bible is so clear in this category i don't know how it is that we manage to silence this so much i think part of it's because we we are a little bit too much in love with the right here and the right now right i mean this gets given away i'm not trying to poke anybody here but you know when you when you spend less time thinking about there but you're able to get up every morning and and do a gym workout that involves an hour of miserably treating your body instead of sleeping in um that says something, right? There's something about right here and right now that really, really is valuable to us. All right, so i put this in your outline. It would seem that as the comforts and the entertainments and the wealth and technology have increased in our world, we are more and more happy to live our best lives here and now. Do you know God's best life for us is not here? it's not now. That doesn't mean it's supposed to be, you know, a horrible thing here because that kingdom has invaded this kingdom. So you and I get to, to taste and get supplied by that kingdom in this world. So we, sh- we shouldn't be these sour puss looking Christians walking around with no sense of happiness because we're just waiting for that day. It's going to get a whole lot better then, and I'm just miserable until then. No, no, no. That's not good either but we don't get to overrealize the future, right? So when I look at these words of restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing, you know, I'm, the most likely place that I'm going to want to apply those words to is my finances, maybe a business that we've owned or started, our careers, opportunities for earthly adventures that God's going to let us go and do and experience. The ability for us to cease from a hard work one day, in our bodies or the ability for these bodies to last forever, right? That's God. I'm praying and I'm hoping and I'm trusting that when you talk about restoring things and strengthening things and establishing things and confirming things, that's what you're talking about. I started a business. It was always my dream that you're going to establish that business, God. And so a year from now, I'm just believing, Lord, that, that after I suffer, after the business is hard for a little while, that's what you're going to do in my life, right? Maybe. Possibly. God does a lot of stuff like that. But in this verse and in First Peter Peter's not trying to get these guys to lift their eyes to their business condition two months from now. That's not what he's trying to get them to see. Oh, look, you could have doubled your income just two months from now. I know people have done that. That's not how Peter sounds. He's making them look farther than that. He's making them look to the age to come, to that which God has promised. He says, you know what, what helps you in this moment of your suffering right now is a correct view of that age to come. When God does all these things, and you can guarantee they're going to happen because it's God who's doing the doing. In this, in this paragraph, and that comes to you. And that produces in you right now a living hope. You will live differently right now if you stare over there hard enough. All right, now here's my proof, and I'm gonna do this super, super fast. Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of faith chapter is gonna tell the stories of people who lived lives by looking at things that they couldn't see. Right? That's what Hebrews 11 begins with, all right? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things we do not see. So these are people who were professionals of what we're talking about here. They looked to something that was coming and not just what was around them, right? So big names, Noah, Abraham, guys are there. And then we pick up in verse 13 of chapter 11. I'm going to run through this quickly. They said, these all, right? All these great names, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had come or gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return. So in other words, If your thought processes are always about here and now, and here and now, that's where you're going to return. Your hope is going to be about here and now. That's what you're going to look to, and you're going to fix yourself on the here and the now. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. Better than what? Better than here and now. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Where here? No. A city there that Abraham said he was looking for the architect and maker of the city where God is the builder of that city. He was looking for something beyond this life. And then listen to the lives that get lived. I mean, so people who live that way, what are they like? Unemployed, got nothing to do. They sit around, twiddle their thumbs, got a bad attitude. They got no ambitions. They're just waiting for Jesus to come back and take them to heaven. Is, is that what they're doing? No. If you go a little farther into this chapter, chapter 11, verse 32, what more shall I say? Right? He's getting to, he's he's just told much more stories of walking by faith. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, right? Through what kind of faith? The faith that looks for a city that's not here. The faith that looks way over there for the realities that are most important in their life. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. How did that happen? Well, Because resurrection is not a problem in the age to come. And that got stuck way back here in these people's lives. Some were tortured. <laughs> I love this. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Do you understand what that's saying? No, no, no. You can go ahead and kill me. It's okay. I get to go to the city that I've been looking for anyway. You know how released these people were from the right here and the right now and the tyranny of everything's got to go my way and everything's got to be just Right? Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now just stop there for a second. How many of you want a Christian refund at this moment? I trusted Jesus for what? For a life characterized by skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and wandering. How many of us right now are going, where's the prosperity gospel? Where is everything should be coming out great? Now, you know, quite honestly, if these people did this to themselves, which the prosperity gospel would teach, then too bad for them. They brought this on themselves. They should have just believed better. They could have escaped all of that well, that's interesting that God puts them in the hall of faith and speaks of them highly. Sent, then verse 40 or verse 39, all these though commended through their faith. So don't adopt that bad theology and attack God's people who he commends them. You didn't say, well, if you had just had better teaching, you just understood the doctrine of faith better. the whole reason why they're in this chapter is because they kept looking in faith to another place besides this one. All these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And the us here is waiting for the same thing that they're waiting for, an age to come in which there's no more sickness, no more sin, no more sorrow. Nobody sheds tears. Nobody has a bad day. We forever are rejoicing in the presence of God. And the thing that we hope for that right now is a living hope is a reality in our lives. And we get to taste it and see it. Now listen, be careful. Keith, I don't know if you're, if you're coming or somebody else is coming back up this morning. Be careful. Uh, When you, when you fall into the mistreatment category and the wandering category and the destitute category, that's the moment where you want to figure out what on earth is God doing here? Does it help? I mean, honestly, does it help for you to realize God's doing this right now? You're not there yet. There is still mistreatment in this world. There is still brokenness in this world. There are still sick bodies in this world. We should not have ever come to expect that we are, uh, we're done with that yet, but we will be done with it. And that's what we set our hope on, that this is temporary. And sometimes it's temporary because it is going to be done by next week or next year. And God does that all the time. But sometimes the temporariness is having to do with heaven and having to do with eternity. Listen, when you keep reading in Hebrews, Hebrews is trying to prepare our faith to be in the right place. and and, and I'm not going to read that last passage just for the sake of time, but Hebrews chapter 12 makes this illustration between the mountain that the people of Israel came to with Moses, and it was a mountain they could touch. They actually went up on it. It was terrifying. God was there, right? It was smoke, and there was fire, and there were sounds going off, and they were warned, don't even touch the mountain. But the writer of Hebrews says, you've not come to that mountain, but you've come to Mount Zion in the city of God, the one you can't touch. Can I just tell you the stuff here can be shaken and everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that the things that remain are not made of stuff that can be shaken. Well, what stuff is that? Well, it ain't stuff of this earth. It's not these bodies and these minds and this limited physical world that we live in. It's an eternal city. It's our heavenly home. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the place that God has gone to prepare for us. And then he said, would you put your hope here? And here's what I want to pray for us this morning. We titled the message this morning, Rebooting Eternity. When was the last time you helped the difficulty of your life by meditating on eternity? Honestly, when was the last time you did that? When was the last time you, you broke out your spiritual binoculars and stared as far off into the distance as it is? And by the way, I don't know how far away that city is from us right now. Do you? Do you know the Bible says that our life is but a vapor? So it ain't too far away. We're going to be there pretty soon. But what the Bible does is it clearly treats that thing that it's, it's not tomorrow. It's not the next moment. It's not the right here and the right now. Pick up your spiritual binoculars and stare into the future and take a good look at that. And meditate on it. And let God make it real in your soul that will awaken in you rejoicing, a living hope. Wait, does that mean my circumstances will change by next week? Your circumstances may not change by next week. You may have a disease that you're going to die from. Well, how can I have hope, Keith? Well, you're going to have to look outside of right here and right now. You're going to have to do it. And I don't know who wrote the book that was so effective in convincing us, don't spend any time staring into eternity. Just stare right here and right now. You're gonna have a really hard time fixing some things by only staring right here and right now. We're to follow Jesus it means we're gonna need to reboot eternity and take a good look at it often and remind ourselves often, we are exiles and strangers in this world. This body is temporary. I'm not staying here forever. There is a home, there is a place that God has prepared for me and oh, what a place it is. And I need to ponder it and think about how delighted I'm going to be in that day and how free from these issues and how no day will be a bad day and I won't have to think right at any day because I will always think right. No one will have to tell me to think about that day and that day. I will be living in the good of that day every moment of my life. But right here, after you have suffered for a little while. I know this morning, some of us are very much in touch with that. We're just, we're in that place where God, could you just bring some comfort to this disturbed setting that I'm in right now? Could you do that, Lord? Well, this is not the only way God does this, by the way, but it is a big way that he does it, that he tells you and he invites you. Can, can you lift your eyes? Can, can He just, turn your attention this way to an eternity in a city made by God. You know what that could do for you? It could turn you into those Hebrews 11 people, people who can endure mistreatment, people who can walk in settings where you feel like you're wandering. There's not any idea. You can do that. You could receive back the dead. Miraculous things could happen in your lives. You could conquer kingdoms. You could advance the cause of justice. You could do amazing things in this world as you stare effectively into another world and by faith live here in light of that. Let's stand up together. Father, this is your strategic word to engage our real moments, real moments, Lord. Lord, your word has informed us this morning that there are temporary settings of suffering that bring about their own grief. We become grieved by various trials. Lord, I I pray for us as a church that when we were walking with each other and somebody is tasting the bitter taste, the grievous taste of their suffering, or that we would not be those Christians who act like that's not real. We don't make any space for that. We act as though they shouldn't have any struggle with that. Lord, it's just not true. Lord, in this moment, you recognize this is a place that hurts. Suffering is full of disappointment, confusion, heartache, Fears that it could get worse. Lord, this is what suffering moments feel like and you know that. I thank you that when you stared into these moments, Lord, you, you knew of our humanity. You wept at Lazarus' tomb. or not because you didn't think you could fix that. You knew what you were gonna do. You wept because of the suffering that Lazarus' family was going through the brokenness of losing somebody to death. So Father, I thank you that this morning, the the varieties of sufferings that are here in this room with us, Lord, you you don't just tell us, suck it up. Oh, get over it. You weep with us and you engage us and you are aware of the pain. Father, you gently take us by the chin and you direct our attention to something else in this passage. You turn us, you reboot our understanding of eternity, of that which will last forever, of the realities of how quickly this is really going to pass. And these momentary light afflictions are going to give way to something massively glorious. And Lord, you call us, you summon us to put our hope in this living place, this living reality, this eternal glory. God, would you help us, Lord? Would you lift our eyes and help us this morning to put our hope there so that here there could be rejoicing even in conflict and difficulty and struggles. So God, would you do this? We are, we are followers of Jesus. We are disciples who are following you. God, it's, it's really hard to do that if we've lost sight of eternity. Lord, would you reboot our awareness and our knowledge and our meditation and our waiting for and anticipating the good, the future, the age to come that you have given to us to wait for. Lord, we are waiting and seeking for the city whose builder and architect is God himself. and We await that eternal home, Lord, that is ours. We are exiles in this world. Lord, give us the grace for this temporary place by opening our hearts all the more to that eternal truth that is ours, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. You guys at home, we miss you. We hope to see you soon. We'll be back live stream next week. But uh, if you can join us, there's space here for you. You can register or you can not register, whatever serves you. And we hope to see you next week.